0: My name is Jim, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jim. My sobriety birthday is July the 31st, 1978. My home group is the Principals Group of Raleigh, North Carolina. We are one group that meets twice a week. Uh, Tuesday night is our closed discussion meeting, and Thursday night is our open speaker meeting. On the first Tuesday of the month, we read and discuss the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. On the second and third Tuesday of the month, we read and discuss our AA literature. On the fourth Tuesday of the month, we study a tradition in conjunction with each month. When there is a fifth Tuesday of the month, we study AA history. In believing, if we don't remember our history, we're doomed to repeat it. And on Thursday night of our open speaker meeting, we are at 4400 Buffalo Road in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you're ever in the area, look us up. And my home group told me to say all of that. <laughs> <laughs> so that you would know that I'm a part of something, that I came <laughs> I would like to thank Michelle for all of the asking me to come up here and share my experience. Strength and Hope was the first contact I had, and all of the communication that she did for me uh, up until this time. Thank you for that. I'd like to thank Scott for hosting me picking me up at the airport. It's good to spend some time with a hometown guy like this that uh, knows the city and he's uh, I have really accepted the city and he took pride in and uh, again meaning 50 cent tour. You know and uh, any problem that I brought up that he he've already you know dealt with it. I'm, I'm glad thank you for uh, picking me up and I've enjoyed uh, uh, spending time with him. I've been enriched just by spending time with him. I had lunch with him yesterday, and he pointed out a few politicians that he know and a couple of ministers that he know, and they know him, too, because they spoke to him on the way out.
1: <laughs>
0: I thought, wow, I've improved just by being here.
1: <laughs>
0: I would like to congratulate the committee on on, on your 10-year anniversary, this is a long time to keep one of these things going for 10 years. It's a good indication that you have done something right. It's good to see that uh, the arms of Alcoholic Anonymous is supporting your conference too. That's a good thing, you know, the archives and the grapevine and Eleanor around supporting it and uh, a trustee at large to read the tradition for us, you know, that, that's great you know, that you have those kind of uh, uh, trusted servants that are participating in something like this. You know, I'm a firm believer if it's not conference approved or if the conference wasn't involved with it, then, you know, I'm, I am i don't know whether it, it, it's right or not. Uh, I, that's just what I believe and that's the way that my home group functions and we do whatever it is that uh, Alcoholic Anonymous have approved and, uh, so willing to share with, uh, with the rest of us that are in recovery, and I, I, I thank God for that, you know, that I hope that that keep on going, and that's the way Alcoholic Anonymous was when I got here, you know, and that's a part of my responsibility today, and in, 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 in my involvement in my recovery is to make sure that Alcoholic Anonymous uh, uh, stayed just like it was when I got here. As you know, I, I came here with broken dreams and learned how to live with uh, a, a, a problem that was that was just unbearable. You know, and I found a solution here in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't want, want to ever do anything to disrupt that. I want that to stay just like it was when I got here, and, and that's, that's a part of my, my responsibility. And the fellowship of Alcoholic Anonymous have already been laid out for me. And all I gotta do is just simply be willing to follow that. I would like to thank Shell for sharing her experience, of strength, and hope with us. So eloquent. She've got your attention, I tell you that. <laughs> <clears throat> Kinda tough to follow that. <laughs> the only thing I could do from here on out is just to mess it up. <laughs> Just in case I mess it up, I got Dick coming behind me to straighten it up. He going to have to straighten it up because I know his sponsor, you know, if you don't take care. So, so you know, I'm in good hands. It's always good to be, uh, you know, in the presence of people, whether that I know somebody. And ever since I've been sober, you know, I always meet somebody that is connected up in the fellowship. And that, that that's, that's just great. Uh, it's a good thing that I... I got invited here, you know, I'm here by invitation. We read one of the uh, uh, pages uh, of uh, 100 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous just w- before we said it, Lord's Prayer at my home group, and it talks about it as when we look back over my all of our lives and look and see when we put ourselves in God's hand, we ended up better than anything we could have planned. You know, I couldn't have planned this. You know, I probably could have planned to went to Kentucky, but this is better. I ended up, this much better than anything that, that I could have planned. You know, I got introduced you this, this evening by Scott, and he said that I was from North Carolina, and most of the people around here, I guess to see the name tag or see your name on the flyer, yeah. I ask you about North Carolina, and uh, you from North Carolina, and all that, and, uh, you know, I say, yeah, and I just go along with it, you know, if that's what I think I'm from. But the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous has allowed me to tell the truth and be accepted, you know, for who I am and where I am. The truth of the matter is I'm from Mississippi. That's the reason why I never would say that I'm from Mississippi, because when they find out you're from Mississippi, they react to it. You know, you're from Mississippi. How in the world did you get way up here? (laughs) On the interstate is how I got (laughs) up there. But I just never was comfortable with who I was and where I was from, you know. And being from Mississippi... You'd always hear those little despairing comments about peoples from Mississippi that they're little dominant than the average rock, you know, they're uneducated, and, you know, they're backwards and awkward, and they're from Mississippi, About the only thing that they really know how to do is go to work or uh, uh, something like that. And I I just wouldn't admit, uh, you know, that that I was from Mississippi. I used to live in the Midwest, and uh I told those people in the Midwest that I had never been any further south than Kansas City. <laughs> you can listen to me and tell that they didn't believe that. <laughs> because I, I was embarrassed of where I was from. I grew up in Mississippi. My mother and father was married for over 67 years. They've always been two parents in my house. Looking back over it, since I've been involved in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I grew up under some kind of realm of normalcy. Not that I'm any kind of expert on normalcy. I know what normalcy is, but there's always been two parents in my house. My mother was a very religious Baptist woman that believed in prayer and doing the next right thing. And my father was a hard-working farmer, you know, and he believed that hard work was the key to success. Didn't believe in education. That's about the only thing he and I ever agreed upon. <laughs> because I wasn't, I wasn't teachable. I've heard a lot of people get up here and say that they always knew that they was an alcoholic. I didn't know I wasn't an alcoholic. I didn't know I was an alcoholic until I got to the Fellowship of Alcoholic Anonymous. I was sober between uh, 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 a year, before I believed and accepted that I was an alcoholic. I wasn't looking for a solution. I was looking for a way out. I was handcuffed in here in 12-step by the police department, and I was looking for a way to get the polices off my case, and then I was just going to proceed again. I couldn't have known that I was an alcoholic because I didn't know what an alcoholic was. You know, so I didn't know that I was an alcoholic, but I gravitated immediately towards people that drank. All of the men in my family drank the alcohol. I'm the only alcoholic. They say if you don't say you're one, then you ain't one. I'm the only one that said that I'm one, so I'm the only one. If they did drink. You know, All of the women in my family ever brought a man in, they brought one in that drank. And I like the change that I saw come over people when they drink. You know, they become different people when they drink. I like them a lot better when they drank. If I'd have had anything to do with it, I would have killed my father with alcohol because he become a different person when he got drunk. You know, all that hard work and all that disciplinary and stuff went right out the window when he got drunk. You know, he'd say, let's leave that cotton in the field. We'll go to town. You know, and I liked him a lot better when he drank, you know. (laughs) I had my first drink of alcohol Christmas in 1951. I was 11 years old. I drank like a pig from the very start. I was drunk for about 10 minutes, and the rest of the time I just (laughs) sat. It all came right back up. Now, I've heard a lot of people get up here and say that, they first drink was just like magic, and I'm sure that was true. They knew that they were going to have another drink when they had the first drink. They knew they were going to have another drink. I didn't know I was going to have another drink. I didn't know I could have, a, have, a, have another drink. I worked hard at becoming an alcoholic. It was not easy for me to become an alcoholic. I ain't never worked hard at anything as I did becoming an alcoholic. Everything was against me becoming an alcoholic. I grew up in a dry county. Alcohol was not allowed in that county. Bootleggers were looked up on by like dope dealers are looked up on today. You know, they were just scums in the neighborhood and nobody else wanted them around. That was a message that I was getting from alcohol that I should have not ever wanted to drink any alcohol. My drinking have never been accepted by anybody. People that sold booze didn't accept my drinking. They would say stuff, you come down here and drink up my whiskey and you won't pay me. <laughs> you get drunk in my place and run all my good paying customers off. Drinking has always been a problem for me. It was a problem the first time I ever had an alcohol, and it was a problem the last time I ever had an alcohol. Initially, those problems were just small. I would get drunk and go places I shouldn't go. I'd spend money that I didn't have. I would say things to people that I shouldn't say, and people would always say something to me about it the next day, would let me know that my drinking wasn't accepted. Alcohol has always made me sick. Basically what you're looking at, I'm a weekend drunk. But i get drunk anytime. But it's just something about getting drunk on Friday night. That old adrenaline gets flowing, you know, and I just can't stop myself. Just in case I've been drunk all week, I'll up on Friday so I can get a fresh start. <laughs> <laughs> And be out there with all other other people that's getting off of work and be a part of that activity. But alcohol has always made me sick. Alcohol made me sick the first time I ever drank any alcohol, and alcohol made me sick the last time I ever drank any. I woke up on Monday morning in giveaway booze, swearing off to quit forever. And I was just as serious about not drinking then as I am right now. But the difference between then and now is you. See, you the difference. I know now that I can't stay sober all by myself. I didn't know that then. You know, that's the first step of Alcoholic Anonymous. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. The first time I ever heard of another human being verbally recite the first step of Alcoholic Anonymous, I never forgot it. I was just like a tape. I taped it. And I could just play it back, but you mean to tell me that that's what my problem is, that I'm powerless over alcohol, and my life is unmanageable. But of course, at that moment, I could not accept that, but it it stuck right with me. I had my first drink uh, in Mississippi. Uh, My first drink was a discouragement, you know, that I grew up with the idea that drinking is just part of being a man. And I never wanted to be what I was. I never wanted to be a boy. I wanted to be a man. And I've always known that I was going to drink whiskey and smoke cigarettes ever since I was that tall because that's what the grown folk was doing, and that's what I wanted to do. I couldn't wait until I get big enough to get a half pint of whiskey and stick it in my hip pocket and a pack of them Lucky Strike cigarettes and stick them up here in my shirt pocket, and I was doing just what the big people were doing. They were going to have to be Lucky Strikes because Lucky Strikes had that red dart around it, and they were going to have to see it. And Jim got some cigarettes in his pocket. You know, that, that, I grew up with that concept that uh, drinking and smoking was just a part of being a man. Now, I don't think anybody ever said that. A lot of stuff that I thought people were saying, after I got sober, I found out that they couldn't have been saying that. And I don't think anybody ever said that drinking was just a part of growing up. I got older brothers. Oh, I met people that had families in here, too. I'm I'm big on families. I didn't tell them I came from a big family. One person was with us yesterday, came from a family of 17, Nothing came from a family of 14. There was so many in those families, I scared to admit how many was in mine. (laughs) I'm one of 12 kids, so I came from a big family, too, and I had older brothers, and they would go off, and, uh, and every time that they would go off somewhere and come back and talk about what a good time they had, there was always alcohol involved. And every time that somebody would talk about what they had did or what they saw my brothers do, it had something to do with alcohol. And I'm grasping that concept that you've got to drink to have a good time. You've got to drink to be a man. I never drank any alcohol after <coughs> that first time I drank any until I was about 15 or 16 years old. My brother came home from the Korean conflict and he was home for 31 days and he was sober the second day after he got there and the rest of the time he was just drunk. And I got out of his whiskey with him and got drunk and the same thing happened. I was drunk for about 10 minutes and the rest of the time I was just sick. It all came right back up. Alcohol physically almost killed me. I didn't know you could get that sick and still live. But that's, that, that's, that's what alcohol did to me. That was the best-looking soldier I ever saw in my life, and I wanted to be like him. He had those shiny boots on and that dressed-up uniform, and he would go down to those bootleg joints and drink, drink that whiskey and win that war single-handedly. <laughs> Man, and they'd put him up on a pedoscope, And I would just sit there at his feet and analyze it wish that I, you know, that I could be like that. But I was just scared to death that I would never be like that because I'm scared to drink that whiskey. You know, because I'm scared of what it's going to do to me. It's, it's, it's going to make me sick. And I would hear stuff like, say, man, that Royce Holmes, he's a real man. He'd go off and fight that war and come back here and drink that whiskey and walked like a real man, and I thought, well, boy, I wonder, will anybody ever be able to say anything like that about me? And I know they weren't going to be able to say that about me because I'm scared to drink. And I guess about this time I must have felt victim to peer pressure. Not that anybody was ever forcing me to drink or encouraging me to drink, but the guys that I was hanging around with didn't seem to be having that problem. So I would drink just to cover up my fear, you know, just to keep them from finding out that, that I was scared to drink. All of this time, I'm still living in Mississippi. I hated Mississippi. I wanted to get out of Mississippi. Uh, everybody else that I know wanted to get out of there, and most of them did get out of there. They left Mississippi and went up north. They'd leave Mississippi and go up, the north. up north. I think some of them come up to Indiana, stay up here about a year or two and get them a new car and a vacation. They'd come back to Mississippi and tell me how good things is up north and how bad things is in Mississippi. And I just couldn't wait to leave Mississippi and go up north. If you leave Mississippi, it did not make any difference where you went. They say you went up north. You can leave Mississippi and go to Florida, and they'd say he's up north. But in uh, uh, 1957, I had a chance to uh, to leave Mississippi. Uh, My brother came home from Omaha, Nebraska uh, for the 4th of July in 1957, and uh, he had a little son. And uh, he was looking for somebody to go back up that summer and babysit his son, and And uh, he uh, talked with my father, and my father agreed to let me go back to Omaha with him for the summer. And uh, baby said his little son, and and that fall I could come back and help my old man gather his crop and go to school. I sat there and listened to them work that whole deal out. I knew I wasn't coming back when I left. If I would get across that Mason Dixie line, Jack, I ain't coming back. I, I, that's it. I was 18 years old, now you're just going to have to imagine this, I was 18 years old. Uh, my brother tucked me a thousand miles away from Mississippi to a city, uh, Midwestern, metropolitan city that's set between Kansas City and Denver, Colorado, tucked me to Omaha, Nebraska, and tucked me into that city and just tightened just me loose. You know, you're just going to have to imagine this. One part of that town was just lined up with bars, North 24th Street. There was a bar on each corner and a liquor store across the streets. And North 24th Street was a real uh, uh, strip kind of a street. People paraded up and down that all day long on the weekend. And, I, you know, I had never saw nothing like that. And I I was just at home, you know. I I just I just went nuts. You know, uh, I, I I just just could not contain myself. Uh, I love those bars. I got introduced to those bars and I couldn't get enough of them. You know, all of my leisure time was spent in the bar. If I fill out an application to get a job, I would put the phone number of the bar on the application. Because <laughs> that was where I was going to be at. You know, my brother did get me a job working on construction. Uh, making $2.25 an hour, working on heavy highway. That's top wages then, man. This is in 1957. General Motors was only making about 2 dollars I'm making $2.25 an hour, working 10 hours a day, 8 hours on Saturday, and that's 18 hours a week overtime. That's the most money I ever saw in my life. I'd get that big paycheck on Friday and head to the bar with Mississippi written all over me. (laughs) Man, those city slickers would sit in there and see me coming. And I would cash that check and try to impress people, you know. I was right out of control from the very start. You know, I was all in. I drank up that money until my money ran out. You know, I would always stop drinking when I'd get broke. That's pretty close to the truth. It ain't absolutely the truth. (laughs) I was just a little bit more comfortable drinking with money in my pocket. I was out drinking one time with a cheapskate-like dip there, and he was buying.
1: <laughs>
0: Can you imagine being a full-blown alcoholic waiting on somebody else to buy? <laughs> Man, that that, that, is, that is miserable. <laughs> but by this time, I did go through that excitement stage of alcoholism. I built up a physical tolerance for alcohol, and booze did not put me down easy. You know, and that was the only thing that I was interested in. I was interested in alcohol and I was interested in a good time. I didn't care if the party didn't ever end. I hope they don't ever close those bars. And that, that that's just where I stayed at. I got sucked into that way of life and I I, I loved it. I loved all those dressed up peoples that go to those bars. I liked those dance floors, I like that music, I liked those live bands, and I, I just simply could not get enough of it. I wasn't interested in anything else other than drinking and having a good time. I wasn't interested in any kind of relationship, or buying a car, or getting a wife. I never could see anybody, how they could drink and get married. <laughs> Who in the world, how could you have time for that? A friend of mine, I used to drink with him. He would go out somewhere and pick up his girlfriend and take her to the bar. I wonder, why did you do that? There's plenty of girls already there. <laughs> and those were the kind of people that I was just interested in getting some kind of relationship with, with the people that was already there. When the bar closed, I know that that relationship was over. You know, when the bar opened up the next day, then I was going to get another relationship going with somebody else. And that that was just the only thing that I was interested in. I called my mother up one time, God bless her, and told about the money that I was making. And she said, boy, you better save some of that money because she might get sick. And I thought, well, boy, I would sure hate to save up $5,000 and get sick. You know. <laughs> A lot of good that that was going to ever do me. <laughs> My brother used to go in that same bar with me and get his paycheck cast and buy a cup, couple of bills and go home and get his wife and kids and go grocery shopping. And I'd look out that bar window and see him going by the, the bar with his wife and kids in the car and grocery bags in there, and I thought he was scared of his wife. Man, what a henpecked guy he is. You know, I can stay down here to this bar till my last dollar is gone, and nobody better not say anything to me about it. This is my money. You know, I do what I want to do, you know, and I, that was what I was doing, just whatever it is that I wanted to do. At this time, alcohol has always made me sick. I was always hungover from drinking. But by this time, I could shake a hangover by 9 o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, and I could usually shake that on the job. I believe that alcoholism is a disease, and I believe that it's a progressive disease. At least that's the way it worked for me. The more my intake of alcohol got, the longer my sickness got. I kept pumping the... Uh, More alcohol into my system, and it got to what that 12 o'clock would roll around on Monday morning, and I'm still in bed. If you're still in bed by 12 o'clock on Monday morning, it ain't no use of going to work. As a matter of fact, don't even call them. Those people in Nebraska at that time was a little narrow-minded about that kind of thing. (laughs) You know? The only thing I was doing at that time was working on construction, and they were looking for people to work on construction. In the late 50s and early 60s, uh, Nebraska was under uh, uh, construction everywhere, and they were looking for people to work on construction, especially if you was from Mississippi, because they thought that's the only thing you know. I can remember the first job that I had there on construction. I was 18 years old, and that guy thought I was going back to school that fall. And uh, he was giving me a little uh, departing lecture, how bad he hated to lose me and how, what a good worker I was. He told me that I did more work accidentally than that whole group did on purpose. Last time anybody ever said anything like that to me. And it got the weather that I couldn't keep a job. I couldn't keep a job on construction. Nebraska was known at that time as the beef state. They killed a lot of beef there, and they had those big four packing houses there, Armors, Wilson, and Cuddy Hayes, and Swifts. And I made my way around all those packing houses, and the same thing happened. i get paid on Friday and wouldn't show up on Monday. And my reputation preceded me around those constructions and outfits and around those packing houses. And they said stuff like that. He's a good worker, but he won't be here on Monday morning. You know, and they want you to work on Monday too, I found out. I could no longer keep a job, and I could no longer get that big, big paycheck and go down to the bar and impress people. You know, and I started doing the next best, best thing. I started stealing. I'm just a petty thief. I'd get in a good thief's way. I'd run out and roll a drunk or snatch a purse or eject the payphone off of the wall and knock that coin changer down in the mat, and get all of that change in my pockets and go back down to the bar. Man, those guys thought I was waiting tables somewhere with all that change. <laughs> but I had found a way that I could stay drunk. You know, all the money that I ever stole, it immediately went for alcohol in a good time. And I couldn't see any kind of good time without alcohol. And that, that's what I did. I would run out and, and steal money and run back to the bar and uh, stay drunk. Stealing is a little bit like uh, alcoholism, it's progressive. My stealing progressed until I picked up a gun and started demanding money from people at gunpoint. You can get a little bit more money with a gun. I <laughs> to tell you. I gotta start getting some of that folding stuff. But the same principle, I'd run out and stick up a gas station or rob a liquor store or do some of that petty and stuff and run back to the bar and stay drunk. I'd always run out of town and stick up something and then run back in town and get drunk. Because I thought somebody sat down in one of those bars, as long as I didn't rob anything right there in Omaha, the chances was a little bit greater that I wouldn't get caught. You know, in 1961, me and four other guys robbed a liquor store on North 16th Street. I can admit to that now The statute of limitations done ran out on it. <laughs> But nothing changed right after that robbery, I'm on the corner doing the same thing I always did. Right after that robbery, I'm on the corner getting drunk. And right in the middle of that insane drunkenness, I made a decision to go back to Mississippi and rob a grocery store. That's the insanity of alcoholism. I drove a 1,000 miles all the way from Omaha, Nebraska, clear to the cap, Mississippi, proposed to rob a grocery store. Wells Fargo is in the Midwest. I drove clear past all of that, all the way to Mississippi to rob a grocery store. Now, I've always known about this grocery store. i know about this grocery store all my life. This was premeditated, planned out, calculated, figured out, down to the teeth. I'd known about this grocery store all my life. I know this guy stayed home all day Friday and all day Saturday and all day Sunday. And Monday it wasn't my plan to go down there and stick him up, get his money, and get back on the highway and head back to Omaha. And nobody would be the wiser. I went down there that Monday morning and stuck him up. He had the money just like I know he would have. I did the same thing I always did. I went 39 miles from the scene of the crime and got drunk. Now, you're just going to have to imagine this. This was in 1961. Five black guys in Meridian, Mississippi, Monday morning on the street, drunk, 39 miles from the scene of armed robbery crime, and this don't look suspicious. <laughs> you know? I thought, well, these people in the Mississippi just as dumb as I always heard they was. They don't know who robbed that grocery store. It's plenty of money in Mississippi. I ain't gonna ever ever have to leave Mississippi again. They let me stay at Meridian, Mississippi, all day that Monday and drank that alcohol. And about nine o'clock that Monday night they come and rostered me out of one of those bootleg giants and arrested me for armed robbery. Next Monday morning they took me up for the scene of that crime and stood me before a judge and sentenced me to a life sentence in the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Farm robbery. Now, I'm not proud of that. You know, that's just what happened. I had enough guilt and shame tied around my neck to last me a lifetime. And I immediately went in to repent. You know, oh, God, if you get me out of this, I'll never do that again. God, you know I know better than that. I was scared. Man, I know about Scared Straight long before Scared Straight came out. And I was scared, you know, and I believed for a long time if they had to tighten me loose, I would have went straight. But I know today that that wasn't true. I was 21 years old and I was a full-blown alcoholic. And there wasn't any way for me to do anything about my alcoholism. And I didn't do anything about it. And of course I would have continued to live the way that I was living, but that ain't what happened. In 1961, they sent me off to that Mississippi State Penitentiary to do a life sentence. The Mississippi State Penitentiary sits on a 21,000-acre plantation, and at that time, they raised cotton and corn, and they did it all by hand. Hard work and cruel and unusual punishment was their method for rehabilitation. Now, that's not a slap at that institution. That's just to point out that cruel and unusual punishment and hard work won't cure cure alcoholism. The harder they work me and the more cruel and punishment that they dished out, the more sure I was, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to get drunk. (laughs) I can't wait to get out of here to get drunk. You know, and that's precisely what happened. This was in 1961. And at that time, a life sentence in Mississippi State Penitentiary consists of 10 years, 120 months. If you did 120 months with good behavior and become a model inmate, then you were going to get parole, And that was my plan to become a model inmate and uh, do what those people tell me. And and, uh, when time comes for my parole, I will make it. And at that time, I'm sure that that institution was ran by a bunch of vigilantes. What they said was the law. You know, what we say, go. And that was my idea, to get in good with those people that ran that institution and become a model inmate, and when my time was up for parole, then I would make that parole. And that, that, that's precisely what happened. I got in with those people that ran that penitentiary, and the, most of those laws that they said goes works in my favor. For the next six years, I was able to do things that you couldn't imagine that a convict would be able to do. I had access to the free world. I had perks that, you know, I'm scared to mention today the freedom that I had done, that life sent us by becoming a model inmate. With all of those perks that came with it, in addition to that, they gave me a 10-day leave home once a year. I made that 10-day leave home four times. And I would just leave that penitentiary and go out in the free world and stay for 10 days. And I would just stay drunk for 10 days. I wasn't interested in going to any kind of sheriff or priest or politician or uh business man or anybody to ask them for some help. I was just simply interested in getting out and staying drunk for ten days. And the last time they let me out for ten days, uh, I went out and got drunk and went back into that penitentiary and stayed for about another four months. and. You know, I did what the big book says, the way that I'm living. It says, that's in the doctor's opinion, that talks about become irritable, restless, and discontented. And that, that's what had happened to me. I came irritable, restless, and discontented. And it was simply because of the way that I lived my life. And the way that I lived my life was fueled by alcohol. I was simply not willing to make any kind of other changes And the thing wasn't working out for me. In 1967, I decided to give them that life sentence back. I escaped from that penitentiary in 1967 after doing six and a half years. You know, I thought that that was enough on that life sentence with me. Let somebody else do the rest of it. I'm gone. You know, all of the stuff that I heard, that I said once before, that I thought I heard, Maybe that wasn't what people were saying. I thought I heard somewhere, one of those convicts says that if you run off from this penitentiary and go to certain states, that they can't get you back. You know, and Colorado was one of those states. And I ran off that penitentiary in 1967 and went to Denver, Colorado. Because they don't cooperate with Mississippi. And they locked me up. <laughs> Every state in the United States cooperate with Mississippi. <laughs> a couple of those foreign countries. It wouldn't have made any difference where I went today. is going to get me back. But I got locked up in 1967 in Denver, Colorado, for being an escaped convict. I was a fugitive from justice. My sponsor says that alcoholics are just full of coincidence. And a coincidence <laughs> happened to me. Uh, uh, they gave me a bond. They gave me a $25,000 bond. I'm a fugitive from Justice. And they set a $25,000 bond on me. And you know, I'm an alcoholic. I got to start thinking. You know, $25,000 bond, I might can come up with $2,500 and make that bond. My brother got some money because he's scared of his wife.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I called him up, you know. I called him up and told him what my problem was—that I'd been busted in Colorado for run off in that penitentiary, and uh, I needed $2,500 to get out of jail. And if he didn't bring me some money out there, he's gonna come get me and take me back down to that Mississippi State Penitentiary. And ain't no telling what they're gonna do if they get me back again. And he caught the plane and flew out to Denver and brought me $2,500 out there to get out of jail. You know, I don't know whether any of y'all ever been in jail or not. Most alcoholics have. But you just can't get out of jail just simply because you got enough money. You know, you got to wait and go before the magistrate. And that's what happened. Uh, uh, I couldn't get out on bond. I had to wait and go before the judge. I couldn't go before the judge before two, three days down the road. Uh, and my brother, he couldn't stay out there until I went before the judge. And I copped an attitude, you know. I don't know what kind of brother he is. I'm out here in all this trouble. He can't stay out here for three days till I go before the court. I wouldn't treat a brother like mine of that, you know. <laughs> About two, three days later, I went before the judge, and my attorney asked the judge to reduce my bond from $25,000 to $15,000. The judge recessed the court and came back and reduced my bond to $5,000. Man, I'm glad my brother's gone now. It only cost me $500 to get out of jail. You know, I never got out of jail either unless I got drunk. The only thing different from this time and any other time, I had $2,000 to do it with. And that's what I did. I got, got out of jail and had me a $2,000 party for however long that that lasted. I was in a perfect position to continue to use and abuse other people. I simply didn't have any use for anybody. If you had saw me hanging around with somebody, they had what I wanted. And I got out of jail on a, on a, on a $5,000 bond, and I was fighting extradition to keep from being extradited back to that Mississippi State Penitentiary, and I'm crying cruel and unusual punishment. And the court system allowed me to fight extradition through the court system of Denver, Colorado. Every time i go to court, they would either uh, postpone it or appeal it or uh, put it off to another court. And they finally appealed it to Colorado Supreme Court. And one day I was laying in the bed and a friend of mine called me up and said I better get the newspaper. And the newspaper says that Colorado Supreme Court denied James Holmes of his expedition and have been ordered back to the Mississippi State Penitentiary to finish serving out the rest of his life sentence. Now, that's how I got to New Jersey.
1: <laughs>
0: I was on that escape charge for four years. I spent two years in Denver, Colorado, and I spent two years in Forsake, New Jersey. But absolutely nothing changed. I'm still a man that is fueled by alcoholism. The only thing that I know that changed the two years that I spent in Forsake New Jersey, my drinking got worse. I crossed that line of, in physical, physical tolerance for alcohol. My body would no longer take alcohol physically. And that's more cruel and unusual punishment than that Mississippi State Penitentiary ever could have dumped out at me. I'm putting alcohol into a body that won't take it. You know, and I got to start having severe withdrawals, you know, I started having blackouts, and. DTs and all kind of hallucinations, and I got started using alcohol as a solution to all of those. You know, if I blacked out and called the police and tell them somebody that stole my car, well, the solution to that would mean to get drunk again. If I get drunk again, I could remember what happened last night, and I'd get drunk again and black out again. And I lived there like that for the next two years in Persaic, New Jersey. In 1971, uh, they arrested me off of one of those corners and arrested me for being an escape convict. And I got expedited back to that penitentiary in 1961, to f- 71, to finish doing the rest of that life sentence. I went back and did another two years and nine months and got out on parole uh, in 1974. And I was four years between penitentiary and coming in the alcoholic anonymous. I left penitentiary and things were worse. I never did grow another tolerance back for alcohol, but I continued to drink for another four years, and it was was it miserable. In 1978 I was arrested for drunk driving, and my parole officers and uh, judges and a few other wonderful people did an intervention on me and then thought that I needed to be sent back to that penitentiary, they finished serving out that life sentence. they thought I needed to go to a hospital to be treated for alcoholism. And I agreed to that. I'm an alcoholic, I ain't crazy. <laughs> you know, Going to the hospital sounded a lot better than going to penitentiary. I was willing to go to the hospital to be treated for alcoholism, even though if I wasn't an alcoholic, I was willing to go. And it was there in that hospital where I was introduced to the Fellowship of alcoholic Anonymous. People every night came in from the community, from the AA community, and brought a message of recovery into that hospital. I have not taken a drink of alcohol since I heard the first alcoholic share their experience, strength, and hope with me. I didn't accept it, but I haven't had a drink since you know, that, that's how I important sharing experience, strength, and hope with another alcoholic is. If it'll work for me, it will work for anybody. And those people came into that fellowship and introduced me to the fellowship of Alcoholic Anonymous. And when I got out of that hospital, they were willing to sponsor me and come take me to Alcoholic Anonymous meetings and keep me involved in the fellowship and, helped me to go over the steps and show me how to be responsible and helped me to get a job that I didn't have to go out to the bar to impress people anymore. And this this fellowship took. It took. I began to see what practicing the principles of Alcoholic Anonymous and staying involved and staying involved and making changes would make a difference in my life. You know, and, and that, that's, that's what have happened to me. All of the things that I lost as a direct result of alcohol, I've gained them back through the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm back in the good graces of my family today. I'm going to run you over about five minutes, all right? I'm back in the good graces of my family today. My mother saw me sober for 16 years. They asked me to say a few words at her funeral. My father saw me sober for 21 years, you know, asked me to do the same thing, say a few words, at at his funeral. All of that came from the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I became gainfully employed. You know, I'm a retired state employee from the state of uh, North Carolina, you know. Worked for the state in the Department of Corrections. Could you imagine that? (laughs) (laughs) They got the old convict going in and out of them penitentiaries, just like he owned it, you know. (laughs) Carrying the message of recovery, you know, that there is a way out, you know, there's a way that one can live without alcohol. I don't want to see anybody ever get out of jail or out of a penitentiary without knowing there's another way to live. You know, I got out of penitentiary and stayed four years and got worse off. I don't want to see anybody ever do that. But I have became gainfully employed for 25 years. I've been married to the same woman for 26 years. I'm the father of two children. I got a little beautiful grandbaby that just do everything that she want to do. If she ever needs this fellowship, that I've, I wanted to be right here for her. And you know that that's all because of the fellowship of Alcoholic Anonymous. That's all because of an arrogant drunk like me became willing to follow the direction of the people that went on before me. I became willing to listen to the to the, to the comforts of approved literature and became willing to accept that and use that as my guide and be able to follow that. I've been quite successful as a working man, you know, just because of the Fellowship of alcoholic Anonymous. The closest I came of having uh, Dick not being an alcoholic came on the heels of, of success. I was sober for eight years and I built a new house from the ground. Moved in there on Thanksgiving in 1987. Christmas of 1987, I had a new Oldsmobile. I decided to go visit my sister. You know, everything is fine. I got a new house, a new car, good job. Went over to visit my sister that Sunday, that Christmas day, and my brother-in-law put me on a pedestal so high that it took everybody in Alcoholics Anonymous to get me off of <laughs> He said, "Man, you really know how to do it. So you've been doing better than eight years, and people have been working at this all day life. Look at you! You've built that new house, got that good job, brand new car, wife, and two beautiful kids." Said, so "Man, you really know how to do it." And just about that time, my sister come running out of the kitchen and said, "Sir so James." I knew that you wasn't an alcoholic. <laughs> Had you been an alcoholic, ain't no way that you could do all this stuff that you're doing. And I guess for about a half a day, I entertained the notion that I might not be an alcoholic. I ain't thinking about drinking. I'm just thinking about not being an alcoholic. <laughs> but if you're not an alcoholic, why not? But thank God I had to go to an Alcathon meeting that night with my sponsor, and no sooner than I walked into that meeting, they knocked me right off of that (laughs) pediscope. So, yeah, you're an alcoholic, and you're right where you ought to be at. You know, if I don't get anything out of this thing today, what I got out of it is to say that my name is Jolly, and what it looked to me like that you have truly accepted me today as being an alcoholic. You know, and that's what I was looking for all along. It just just accepted. looking for a place that I can be, you know, me. You know, I wanna be who I am, I wanna be from where I'm from. I wouldn't quit being me to be anybody I know. I would rather be from Mississippi than to be from any place in Indiana. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I wanna be me. You know, and you have allowed me to be that. And I'll be forever trying to pay you back for you just allowing me to be who and what I am. And I want to thank you for listening. God bless you.